This is recording number 11067 from the Teaching Ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, September 8, 2013. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, House to House. The Case for Community. I am going to talk to you today about uh, the case for community, house to house, the case for community, because this week we launch, relaunch for this year our microchurch ministry, which is um, the most important thing we do around here, the backbone of what Crossroads is. And, and if you've been paying attention, then you know that, to, that we still have one more uh, lesson to go in our series from the second and third chapters of Revelation about uh, the... Uh, the uh, letters to the churches, the report card for the church, and I meant to give that today, and I was all prepared to do so, but then I realized that, you know, I just can't let this important week ahead of us as we relaunch Microchurch go without us talking about the spiritual, the scriptural underpinnings for why we do this, and so that's what we're going to deal with today. But even though some of us have, you know, and I'll admit it, I'm a loner. You know, if it wasn't for my dear wife, uh, I would be a hermit for sure and much, much uh, uh, deprived in that state. I am naturally inclined to just go off on a corner all by myself and leave me alone. I'm, I'm that kind of guy. But if, if I had been, if the Lord had allowed me to be that, to just live out that uh, kind of existence, I would be so much depleted, so much shriveled up inside. Part of me would be dead today. Uh, but God, I thank God that he has not allowed me uh, to, 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 uh, to do that. Because even though that's my natural inclination, down deep in my heart of hearts, I, like you, long for connection to other people and community. It may not be my default position, but it is the default of my soul. We were designed for community. Now, back uh, between 1982 and 1993, I know most of you weren't even born then, but for 11 years, there was a television sitcom that was at the top of the charts, year after year, Emmy Award winning, uh, a sitcom called Cheers. And it played on or drew upon this idea of people wanting or longing for a community. That was its bread and butter. That was its calling card. In fact, the theme song, part of it went like this. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. And I think that it's probably goes without saying that most of us, you know, that sounds good. That sounds right. Sounds like, you know, the way it ought to be. Now, Cheers was a bar in Boston. I'm not advocating that you hang out in a bar. I'm just saying that there is something that's built into us that cries out for that, that longs for that, that wants to be known and wants to be safe and wants to be in that, the fold, the circle of relationship and fellowship. Even if it's not our natural inclination, there is a part of us all that longs for that. 
You know, I'm, I think most of you know that I'm, I'm, uh, I hang out a lot in Starbucks. If I'm not stopping there on my way uh, uh, into the office in the morning, I, I have meetings there. And, you know, every, any excuse will work for me. So, um, but you know that Starbucks, the company, and I don't know how many gazillions of dollars they've made, but uh, it really, the, the uh, appeal of Starbucks is not their beverages. The, strat the business strategy of the company is really not about coffee. I want you to listen to their mission statement. It says, when we are fully engaged, we connect with, laugh with, and uplift the lives of our customers, even if just for a few moments. There's nothing yet there about coffee or beverages of any sort, is there? Sure, it starts with the promise of a perfectly made beverage, and that will be the only reference to, it doesn't even say coffee. That'll be the only reference to, be, to beverage of any sort in the entire mission statement right there. So it says, um, sure, it starts with the promise of a perfectly made beverage, but our work goes far beyond that. It's really about human connection. When our customers feel this sense of belonging, our stores become a haven, a break from the worries outside, a place where you can meet with friends, it's about enjoyment at the speed of life, sometimes slow and savored, sometimes faster, always full of humanity. Interesting, isn't it? We pay these people a fortune because we want what they're selling, which is community. The Bible says that God is a community. Three in one. Three persons that are one in essence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want you to look at John chapter 17 where I asked you to turn. Verse 11 in light of that. Now I am no longer in the world. Jesus is speaking and he's praying. He's talking to the Heavenly Father. He's speaking to the Father. He's praying. And describing what's about to happen where he is no longer with his disciples. He says, now I am no longer in the world. But these, talking about his disciples, these are in the world and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are one. Jesus was praying to the Father. I figure if Jesus is praying about something, it's, ought to be, it's probably pretty, pretty important, yes? And he's saying, Father, I want for these, my disciples, to experience something of the oneness that we experience. I want them to know community. I, want, I am praying that you will give them that sense of belonging and oneness that we experience. You know, God. the Bible says that God made us in His image. He designed us to be people who are connected with one another, to communing with one another in some way similar to the unity of the Godhead, something that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit experience. It's clearly not exactly the same, but toward that. And Jesus here is praying about it. Look at verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Most of us here qualify. That's talking to us. Jesus was including us. Including you in this prayer. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me 
and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. There's something of the gospel that's at stake in our experiencing this oneness, this community that Jesus was praying to the Father for. So it's big stuff. It's important. It was important to Jesus. And I think intuitively all of us understand that. Now you've heard me talk before, I'm sure, about Dunbar's number, but just in case, let me explain. This woman, Robin Dunbar, is a British anthropologist. Now I'm not an ologist of any sort, uh, but an anthropologist is someone who, who studies people. And uh, her studies resulted in the theory that human beings have a limit, a hard limit, to the number of people they can relate to in a meaningful way. Now all of us know lots of people. We know the names of all of our aunts and uncles, hopefully all our aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters, mom and dad, and neighbors and friends. Some of you, some of you can remember the name of your you know, high school, uh, you know, the person that uh, was on the softball team with you in high school. Some of you, you know, Some of you have chosen to forget the name of your high school sweetheart. But anyway, the, the, you know, we have a lot of people that we're keeping track of. That's not what she's describing. She said that there's a hard limit to the number of people you can have a meaningful relationship with. That and, with, and she described that as uh, that you not only know these people, but you also know how they are connected to each other. You, you, you understand this group as a system. How they network together. Who's related to who, to who, who works with who, how they met each other, do they know each other. You have all that information. That's knowing someone in a meaningful way. Her theories have, have been uh, pretty much uh, universally adopted. It's never really been significantly, significantly challenged in any way. That human beings have a hard limit to the number of people that we can have meaningful relationships with. And that number is 150 to 200. That's it. So now consider the disciples of Jesus whom the Lord has commissioned to take the gospel to the whole world and make disciples of the whole world. That's a much bigger number than 150 people. How in the world are they going to do that? Our church, this, this congregation... I don't know. We don't, we don't keep real close stat statistics about all this, but I, we, I imagine our constituency is somewhere around 300 people, and on a Sunday morning right now we are having about 200 people here. Well, you know, that's straining the limits of that meaningful relationship thing. And if we're going to be people who fulfill the Great Commission to reach the whole world with the whole gospel, how can we do that how can we embrace more? It's an impossibility apart from the Holy Spirit. And that was partly what Jesus was saying when he told them, don't even start this thing until you receive power from the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see in just a minute some of the strategy that the Holy Spirit gave to them for how to do that. Because 85% of the churches in the United States never get bigger than this one. Because... This is, this is all we can get. This is, is, we can only get our arms around this size of a group of people. Did you know that 60% of the churches in the United States never get uh, larger than 100 people? The, the pressure to smallness is built into our 
Um, it's hardwired into our, our brains. Our capacities just will not allow for more than that. And so churches become single cell and they kind of just stay that way except that nothing can remain the same forever. Anyway, I don't want to get off on that. Our, our leadership has been discussing this for a couple of months during this summer. and So you've heard me talk ad nauseum about it. I won't anymore this morning. I just want you to understand what the church was up against when Jesus gave them this assignment. It was, it was tough. And they needed an answer from the Holy Spirit. They needed a strategy that only the Holy Spirit could give them. And I want for you to see now how that came about. So... Turn to Acts chapter 2. John is just before Acts, so if you just keep heading to the right, you're going to get there in a short while. Acts, and then the second chapter, and we're going to start reading at verse 40 in just a moment. Some of you know the story of the day of Pentecost. The day that the, the disciples, the 12 disciples, or excuse me, 11 now, and then they added another, the 12 disciples, and the other followers of Jesus... After he had resurrected from the dead and then ascended into heaven, they gathered in an upper room to wait for what he said was the promise of the Father that the Holy Spirit would be poured, about, poured out on them and they would receive power to do what he had called them to do. So they're waiting there. Anybody know how many people that was? 120, yes. 120. That's right there at, that, that, at Dunbar's number. So unless something changes pretty drastically, the church of Jesus Christ isn't going anywhere. Verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. That's Peter because Peter's giving his first sermon and he's concluding it now. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized in that day. About 3,000 souls were added to them. They went from 120 to 3,120 overnight. What if that happened to us? What if tomorrow this church grew by 10 times Overnight. What would that do to the nature of what we are? How in the world would we handle that? I'll tell you, there's really kind of two things that usually happens in that case. Usually churches become uh, platform-centered. A show. You know, that's kind of a crass way of saying it, but people come to watch what happens up here. And in that case... You can have a lot of people because there's no engagement between... There's nothing that's required of anybody and relating to anybody. You just come and watch the show. That's typically what happens. That's, generally speaking, that's how... And I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but that's how the mega churches do it. It's, they put on a big show. And, and, and it's, it has value and worth. I'm not demeaning it. I'm just saying there's... Not much required in terms of interaction among the thousands of people that are, that are there. So that's one way to go. The other way, or the other thing that often happens is that people just become so, feel so disconnected with one another, they move on. Because what we're really looking for is connection with people. So a big thing has happened here. Over, overnight... The church has gone from 120 to 3,120. And how is it that they 
we're able to handle that in a way in a right way let's watch verse 42 and they continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers then fear came upon every soul or reverence came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved so not only were they the 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 strategies that the Holy Spirit unleashed among them that are described here along with the characteristics that defined that church not only did those those strategies and characteristics embrace the 3,000 that had had been birthed overnight but made room for every single day after more people more people more people and anytime anywhere throughout the the 2,000 years of church history, people have wanted to, to see what the church is supposed to be like. These are the verses we come to. This describes the church we all want to be part of. Where people, where need does not exist because where, there's, where there is uh, excess, it goes to the need. Where there's uh, people taking bread with one another. Where there's joy, where there's you know, all the things that are described here. That's what we long for. That's what we want church to be. That's our hope. That's the thing that, you know, resonates in each of our soul for that kind of community. That Starbucks and Cheers are only a cheap ripoff of. This is what we want. This is what we long for. But this was not a holy huddle of 120 people. This was a mega church. And yet, they did that in spite of their bigness. They maintained the, the availability of people to connect with one another in deep and meaningful ways. How did they do that? Well, it says daily they met in the temple. I'm sure they didn't. Well, I don't know. They may have paid some, some fee to lease this room, but likely not. But they met in a room at the temple in Jerusalem called Solomon's Portico. The thousands of them every day to learn from the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine. But then, they also met from house to house. That's how they did it. I'm sure that it wasn't, you know, somebody's grand plan except for God's. That they just found themselves, having been recently filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, understanding intuitively this is how it works. That there is something that's, some things that can only be accomplished when the whole church is gathered together. There's a dynamic in worship. How many of you know it's just fun to be able to worship God in a large crowd where everybody's honoring Jesus and it's rip-roaring grand time, right? But there are lots of things about what it means to be a follower of Jesus that cannot happen in that environment. They just cannot happen as you're staring at the back of somebody's head. And the balance of those two things is what allowed the church in its early days to grow and grow and grow and yet never lose that sense of community. Everybody was connected in a meaningful way with some other people. And 
when you read through the book of Acts, which is the story of the expansion of the early church, you see this pattern over and over again. There are so many greetings from from those who were writing epistles to churches that met in people's homes. There was a couple, Aquila and Priscilla. It seems that everywhere they went, and they, they started off in, in somewhere in Rome, or uh, probably in Rome itself, in Italy for sure, and um, where, where had to flee because of persecution that came to the Christians, and Paul met them in Corinth. And then they followed him from Corinth to Ephesus and then eventually they went back to Rome. This couple, Aquila and Priscilla, everywhere they went, they started a church in their house. They had people gathered there with them. And, and over and over again, we see this is the pattern. I'd like for you to turn to Exodus, or excuse me, Acts since you're already there. Now from chapter 2, verse to, uh, uh, chapter 2, go to chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul, who uh, the Lord used to start many of the churches in the, in the, around the Roman Empire, he's concluding, pretty much concluding his missionary journeys. He's on his way back to Jerusalem, um, where the events will unfold that will cause, cause him to be sent to Rome as a prisoner. But he stops in a little town called Miletus and he calls for the elders of the church from Ephesus, one of the churches that he had founded and he gathers them together and gives them sort of a farewell and that's what we're dropping into here in Exodus chapter... Why do I keep saying Exodus? Acts. A-C-T-S. Okay? Chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus... He, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept nothing back that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house. Here Paul shows again, this is the pattern of the New Testament church. I taught you publicly and from house to house. You can see it again and again and again through the pages of the book of Acts. I'm taking the time this morning to point that out because that's why we have this ministry in our church called Microchurch, which we really mean is the backbone of of what this church is about. If microchurch does not succeed, Crossroads does not. We will drift into that thing that's just you come and watch what happens on the platform. And I, Look, I've been at this church thing for a long time. I've done enough of that. I don't want it anymore. I want this. I want what the Bible describes at the end of Acts chapter 2. And I think you do too. And that comes when we strike this proper balance between... The large gatherings of all of the whole church and the house to house. Now, the fact that we have a ministry called Microchurch that gets launched this week, and there'll be five homes uh, in our county where people can assemble together for this kind of fellowship and relationship community, because we we say because we offer it, because we launch it, doesn't mean it's going to accomplish what we intend or would like. But it can. It could. 
right? The possibility and potential is out there that we could experience. There's no guarantee. (laughs) But the possibility exists that we could experience something of what we just read about at the end of Acts chapter 2. Whether it happens or not depends mostly on us. But it could happen. And when it does, I think there's four, th- four things that characterize that kind of gathering. Four things that we want to see part of our microchurch experience. And the first of those is fellowship. Now, fellowship is not the Christian word for party. <clears throat> we use it that way sometimes, though, right? We're going to have a fellowship. <laughs> you can't... Uh, that's not, that sentence doesn't make, doesn't make sense. Fellowship is so much more than that. Well, look, fellowship ought to be, ought to be something you, that is uh, valued and looked forward to. And, and in my opinion, ought to be fun. But, it, but fellowship isn't something you have or do or go to. Fellowship is something that exists between people. And it's something only the Holy Spirit can do. And it's deeply relational. The word in the Greek that's translated fellowship in your English uh, Bible there is a word koinonia or kinonia and that word I, I won't even go into all that it means but it's extremely deep and in fact is found in um, uh, wedding ceremonies marriage covenants because it describes the kind of depth of relationship that people are pledging to one another when they stand before God in matrimony it's deep Because we announced that we're going to make room for fellowship in our microchurches doesn't mean that it's going to happen. But it could. It could. And I think there's something in each of our hearts that longs for that. Fellowship. The second thing that uh, we want to see happen in our microchurches and is something that really cannot take place in any other kind of venue but a small group of some sorts is truth application. Now there's, you know, the Bible, that book you hold there in your hand or on your screen there is full of truth. Anybody figured that out yet? I mean, it's just full, chock full of truth. And there's lots and lots of ways to be exposed to it, to take it in. Some, you can come and, and hear some guy like me, uh, you know, carry on about something out of the Bible. You can read it for yourself. You can buy books and you can listen to podcasts and you can watch video. There's lots of ways to get truth into you. But what really matters is that that truth that you've gotten into you actually starts to affect the way you live. That it starts to be applied in your life. Really? I mean, that, 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 how could it be otherwise? Otherwise, you know, in an, otherwise, all it is is just knowledge. You could spout off all kinds of facts and figures about truth. But if it's not changing the way you live, what does it matter? What's the point? And we all have seen people who've got plenty of stuff up here and very little to show for it. Yeah. Right? So truth application is, what's, is what we're after, not just... Um, The receiving of truth. And let me tell you, truth application only happens. It only happens when you're in a context where you can bang it up against other people. 
where you can chew it over, where you can argue about it, where you can wrestle with it, where you can spit it out, and something actually becomes real then. And so it's not until I'm staring somebody in the face and interacting with the scriptures and with truth in that way that anything of lasting value takes place. That's why, you know, there's... You know, the people gathered together, thousands of them, to hear the apostles' doctrine. But that was incomplete until they were house to house, banging that truth together against one another and the realities of each other's lives to find out how this thing could actually work. If you come to our microchurches expecting to be lectured to, you're going to be really disappointed because it's not about that. It's about uh, interacting with the scriptures truth application the third thing that happens in a small group that really can't happen in the same way anyway is prayer prayer communicating with and hearing from God in that environment where we, we can offload our hearts in the presence of God and receive from him and you know I am looking forward once again to having a weekly appointment with people that will pray for me. And it doesn't mean that every week I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask them to surround me like those people in the video and pray over me. But it, it, it does mean I, I can. They're, they're, I have this weekly appointment with a group of people who, who will pray with me and for me about whatever's going on in my life. And that is so incredibly important. And then finally... A word none of us likes. Accountability. How many of you, be honest enough to raise your hand and say, there's something about my life I wish would change? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let me tell you the hard truth. Nothing ever changes in our lives without accountability. It just flat doesn't. If there's no one holding you accountable, look, we're all just wicked. And we will resort to what's comfortable, what's, you know, in our self-interest. It, it just won't happen. But the kind of accountability that we all need is not the kind where, you know, we, we feel like somebody's always looking over our shoulder and evaluating us and just watching, you know, scrutinizing us in every way and giving us feedback on... Accountability is not that. But accountability is an environment where you can't hide. Okay? That's all it means. It's, it's that, you know, there's, there's lavish amounts of grace, but you, you can't hide. <laughs> Every week, every week you hang out with people who they, they kind of know you and they kind of know your stuff. And it's not that they're going to be in your face about it, but, you know, it's hard to pretend when things are not going the way that you want for them to. But that creates the environment where actual change can take place. And we all need it. We all need it.